Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on developments in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, top commentators. It's Friday, the 3rd of November. Coming up, crucial AGOA talks are underway. How can South Africa optimally navigate the process? Calls made for politicians to send their children to state schools instead of going private. Is the ANC hijacking the Springboks Rugby World Cup glory? We'll look at the state of African rivers with one of the world's leading environmentalists and how a local cheese has wowed the world stage. The Africa Growth and Opportunity Act is up for discussion over the next few days, with some calls for it to be turned into a longer-term pact. So where has the benefit principally been for South Africa, and more importantly, what do we want to achieve? First up on the program is Dr. Kingsley Makubela, Director at Risk Recon and a former ambassador. So firstly, how has AGOA specifically benefited this country since its inception? Well, it has been good to a very large extent, Jeremy, because it allows South Africa to import certain goods into the American market duty-free. And the American market is quite huge. The economy of the U.S. is huge. And the appetite for consumption in the United States is huge. The spending power of the American is quite huge. So it provides very good opportunities, very sustainable markets in terms of sending things. It's not one of those markets that are periodic. Even during the, the difficult times, it remains very strategic because of the spending powers of the Americans. Are you able to tell us what products have specifically thrived under the Act? Well, the motor industry has been doing very well. About three, four years ago, you know, because South Africa exports the left-hand drive uh, motor vehicles to the U.S., particularly the, the BMW X3 that has been assembled in this country and exported in the U.S. The C-Class Mercedes-Benz has done very well. When the X3 a few years ago, they started to export to the U.S. market, actually the defects of uh, those cars were zero rated. There were no defects which really met the FDA standard and really surpasses anyone. Because in the motor industry, you do find very minor defects that are not critical. But in terms of that, uh, South African products Mm. were doing well. And there was a big praise for the South African labor force and the quality of the labor uh, responsible for assembling them. So that has been a very big one. The agricultural sector has done very well. And and I know, uh, Jeremy, now there's a concern that the Americans should expand the goods into the, the market. I don't think it's realistic at this time to expect that, particularly when the U.S. is going through elections. You know, the agricultural lobby in the U.S. is is quite big. It has been, to a large extent, opposed to some of this duty-free. But because of the appetite of the American and the, the demands in the market, it's not a problem now. 
Considering the current trade landscape then, what outcomes would be ideal for South Africa? I think one thing that South Africa has to be very firm about during this discussion, I know there's a review of the geopolitical tension that exists. It's really to avoid the either-or, that you, you deal with the Americans or you deal with the Chinese. I think both markets are too uh, critical for South Africa. But I think the American market, because it's not a charitable thing, it's because there's a demand in the U.S., and it's because these products that are going into the U.S. in turn, they, they help South Africa. But one of the issues that the Americans are going to be firmed this time around is around corruption, because it's part of the conditions of the services that uh, the government must be able to deal with corruption. And we've seen uh, really corruption spiraling out of control. You may have seen now the president is deploying the military to deal with the construction mafia. I think there's pressure really to deal with both corruption at the government level private sector and the lawlessness that is starting to really emerge within our economic sector. So those are the issues that the American would expect. I think what we would expect is to have a bilateral relations as South Africa within their Goa framework that is not influenced with how South Africa deals with other partners, including how we deal with the U.S., the European Union, how we deal with China, how we deal with Russia, because the U.S. does business with all these global powers. So we must be able to really affirm our position about that. And how do we do that? How, how do we navigate that fine line, for instance, between China and the United States, where there are competing ideologies? You recall uh, sometimes last year, August, I think, when Secretary Blinken was here, he launched a document that is called the U.S. Strategy Towards Sub-Saharan Africa. And if you look at that document, part of what the Americans have decided to do is that they are going to manage and try to communicate what they think are negative behavior of China and Russia. Those are purely ideological at a certain level. But I think what we need to be firm about is the trade between the United States and China. For instance, it's huge. Take the semiconductor market. Semiconductor market is half a trillion that the U.S. buys, half a trillion dollars that the U.S. buys from China. Why can't we do that? Why can't we have similar trade arrangement? The U.S. buys about 14, 20% of its uranium from Russia for its uh, energy sector, and they buy 14% of that is enriched uranium. And they continue to do that, despite this tension that exists. It's how do we manage the global tension and really focus on what is strategic for the country? I think what South Africa should resist in this case, and should resist the same if China or Russia raises this, is to come up with this idea of either or. And I think at a political level requires some level of uh, backbone because countries like India are succeeding in doing this. Uh, now Saudi Arabia is succeeding. So I think we need to reassert ourselves at the bilateral level. The problem is that South Africa has been communicating cold and hot air about a host of issues without making it quite clear and in the process opening itself for more lobby and for more indirect actually blackmail so far jeremy you recall i haven't had the americans saying that they're gonna stop the agoa preferential treatment for sarafi it has been something that emerges out of here and i think to a large extent it has to do with competition of business those who are dealing with china and russia and those who are dealing with the u.s the Americans haven't said that. They haven't blackmailed anyone quite open. But we know the Americans use uh, the economic diplomacy very well. I'm going to leave it there, Dr. Kingsley. Uh, Makubela, thank you very much indeed. 
You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The South African Federation of Trade Unions says it's talking to political parties to bring forward legislative proposals that would compel all senior government officials to enroll their children into public schools. On this issue, joining us now is Trevor Shaku, who speaks for the Federation. So why are you making this call? Because there has been a systemic neglect of our public institutions, not only schools, but public institutions. And we think that the main cause to this is partly caused by the fact that the children of the senior government officials and the ministers, the members of cabinet, they are not utilizing these public institutions. And therefore, it would be important in our view to have them compulsorily attend the public institutions, to be forced to use public institutions. And in that way, they will, in our view, begin to take steps necessary to improve the quality of services by just pure and basic delivery of services. For instance, they're embarking on austerity measures, and they do not even consider what would be the impact of such austerity measures on the delivery of these public institutions. The school which we made reference to, which was cited in the public protector's report, shows that it has about 17 teachers, 618 learners. The ratio thereof is 1 is to 36. But because learners are not evenly distributed across the grades and across the classes, you have in a grade 10 classroom, one classroom, 164 learners. And this follows in grade 9, where you have 119, mm-hmm. in grade 8, where you have 121. In addition to this, the school does not have library, does not have a natural science laboratory, does not have a math lab, and does not even have a school hall. In addition to that, they do not even have proper playgrounds for extramural activities. Now, the children of the senior government officials are not utilizing these public institutions. They are going to posh schools with Kuro and other independent schools where we know, as a matter of fact, those schools are not understaffed, they are not under-resourced, and therefore their children are getting better education, whilst the children of the overwhelming working-class majority are getting poor education. So the, the intention behind this idea is to shame the government into some sort of action in improving public schools. Indeed, that is the logic behind this particular call, because we think that if we were to do that, Surely, a person who knows that their children will go through that education, and if that education is so poor that children in grade four cannot dream for a meaning, they will have to improve the delivery of education, firstly studying by investing of resources. It is not a mistake that children in grade four, 80% of them, cannot read for a meaning. The reason for that is because there is a serious neglect again right. in relation to the investment of resources in as, the foundation. As, 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 as Trevor, you have to told R. me, you're engaging with political parties. Which parties and what have they told you? So what we did is that we wrote a letter, which is to be signed off today and sent out to, we were thinking around what we think were historically leaning left political parties, uh, the Azapo, PAC, and the EFF. And of course, if any other party would join into that, we will welcome it because in our view, the majority we can lobby in cabinet will actually enable ourselves to make this legislative change to be possible. 
And not only through that, because we are going to be putting this main proposition through NETLAC, and therefore it will have to go through legislative body, which is parliament, and therefore in there it will still be voted into or rejected. Right. Therefore you need a majority. So we will have to lobby whoever we can into the camp to ensure that this legislative change take place. So how do you respond to critics then who might argue that compelling people to send their children to a state school could infringe on personal freedom and choice? We do accept that criticism, but we are saying these are not just ordinary people. These are people who are tasked with the responsibility of ensuring that public education, public health care are offered to our people as enshrined in the constitution. The constitution does not require them to be contributing through corruption to the toning down of the quality of the services that are offered. And therefore, in that context, it is only fair that people who are bungling the delivery of these services must taste how the bungling of those services is and the impact thereof on the people. And therefore, that is the reason why we are not saying public, all public servants must do that. We are being specific, senior government officials who are responsible for implementation. Are you engaging directly with the ruling party in this respect? No, we have not engaged them. Why not? We do not think that we should be engaging people who are responsible for the bungling. Here, it is important to lobby the opposition. If we lobby the ruling party, we will be giving an unnecessary credence to them because these are the people in the first place who need not be reminded that they should implement the public service provision to the best quality and should not be reminded time and again that this is what you ought to do, this is your constitutional obligation, and therefore we require you to be able to so that surely you can only affect amount. surely you can only affect change if you talk to the government officials involved and many of those officials might be members of the ruling party i don't understand how it would give unnecessary credence to the argument we think it will in the sense that you see you have a party that voluntarily bungles the delivery of this service the management of resources in this country and therefore to go to them and say uh, we want you to be lobbied or rather to come behind the call we are making that your ministers, your directors, the very people that you have appointed should in the main be compelled to take their children to public institutions. Uh, to a certain extent, in, indeed gives a credence. But I do take the point that you are making because in the main, they hold the majority in government, uh, in parliament rather, and therefore nothing might actually pass without their endorsement. Well, Trevor Shaku, that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. But uh, let's see how this uh, process of yours unfolds. And thank you very much for joining us. Trevor Shaku speaks for the South African Federation of Trade Unions. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. While the country is still basking in the success of the Springboks victory at the World Cup, there's also a question about who else is benefiting Hitch your cart to this horse and you can also bask in the halo. The political editor of Scrolla Africa, Zukili Majova, says bluntly the ruling party has shamelessly hijacked the Springboks' glory. He joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. So in what way then has this happened? Ah, Jeremy, it's been, it's been coming for a while. Before this column that I wrote, there was a column that I wrote earlier. I noticed when the president said he phoned 
the coach of the Springboks is going to France, wants to lift the trophy. There was a buzz around rebuilding the Nelson Mandela moment. You know, again, that is just politics, and that's how politicians behave. A lot of concentration on that. Obviously, you can't build something called the Nelson Mandela moment of 1995. Nelson Mandela was not a robot, you know. He was a very sophisticated person, but also a very normal and common person from Kunu. How he moved around circles, big circles, small circles, how he made small people big. There's no way you can remake that. I mean, they tried now and everybody can see through it. I mean, the president admitted yesterday he had to learn the names of the Springbok players. I mean, you're supposed to be the number one uh, supporter of the Springboks. You don't even know their names. It's crazy. Do you think this takes something away from the victory? Do you think it cheapens it? It cheapens it, Jeremy. I mean, you, you hear the language. It's 2023. We're back to talking about unity. Who said we are not united? If we are not united, who is causing this unity? You know, it's the politicians, if anything. South Africans know how to unite. South Africans know how to celebrate. We live together. We don't need to be coached on how to celebrate. You don't need uh, to give us the language of unity and all of that. If anything, probably in 1994, you could talk about that. Now you need to talk about inspiration, inspiring young people. A lot of young people have taken the first step of getting an education and they are being betrayed by their own country and its faltering economy. People are not getting jobs. We're talking hundreds of thousands here. Something, an achievement like this, again, it's an achievement of young people. These players are young. It's about inspiration, Jeremy. We live in a world of uh, load shedding. I'm now uh, in load shedding in Craycall, you can imagine. So this is what we should be talking about here. This is inspiring for young people. We should be talking about inspiration, but maybe we also need to talk about rugby development after the success. And Zukili, how do you think then that funds should be allocated, and here's the key word, to genuinely promote the sport across different communities? One senses that that isn't happening sufficiently. I like the fact that you talk about genuinely because when you make a concerted effort to get more black players into that, it's not going to work. A lot of us who played rugby in the Eastern Cape played it out of fun. I make a note that in December, people would, would, would have a rugby game to win a ship, which would become part of the Christmas lunch. It's the same with guys who are playing soccer. People come back from Johannesburg. They form teams and all of that. It's got to be in that spirit. Otherwise, it's not going to work. You can't choreograph people. people. People don't work like that. Now, there's a love of rugby. I mean, in the Eastern Cape, there's a love of rugby, cricket, and boxing. Those are the number one things in the Eastern Cape. But there is no investment in any of those. And one of the cheapest ways of getting into sport is just playing rugby. You don't need anything. You don't need uh, things that are expensive that many parents in the Eastern Cape cannot afford that you would need to get into the cricket game or tennis or any of those sports. But rugby is just anybody's sport. You don't need to be thin, slim or what. Any shape works. Whether you are slow, you are fat, you are this, you will be able to find a position in rugby. I weigh 110 kilograms and I played rugby for, for over 10 years. There's no way of teaching government how to how to distribute money. That thing is not working in South Africa. Unfortunately, that is not working. Even if we're talking about developing more black players for the Springbok, Rasi did not follow the, the political uh, dictum on how this should be done. You know, SA Rabbi knows that there are lots of these players. They are everywhere. You go to uh, SA Craven Week, you will find a lot of the black players. It's a question of capturing them there, developing them. So 
the system is there, the hunger is there, Jeremy, already. Just finance it, create rugby fields in the Eastern Cape and everywhere else where people want to have a, a sport. Why can't people just have recreational sport in, in, in Soweto? Not everybody should turn professional just for health, for fun. Why should people be stuck in their small rooms, in their RTP houses and not have sports grounds? What kind of a country are we becoming? We should have this sports ground, create those resources, leave them there and, and see what happens. I'm going to leave it there and uh, thank you for those thoughts. The political editor of Scrolla Africa, Zukili Majova, thank you. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Navigating the great spine of Africa, it's the topic of a talk that well-known South African conservationist Dr. Steve Boys is going to deliver at the Royal Geographic Society next week. He'll present on how the great spine of Africa expeditions work with community members and also multidisciplinary teams to traverse thousands of kilometers of rivers that have never been scientifically documented. He joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And first up, can you explain why understanding rivers systems, particularly in Africa, is so crucial for both local communities as well as biodiversity? Well, the big picture is resilience to the impacts of climate change. And uh, what we discovered in the Angolan Highlands was the second largest peatland resource in Africa. That's about water storage. And we're finding these all over Africa. We are demonstrating through our exploration that Africa is far more resilient than we thought it was to the impacts of climate change. Why do you think that is? Because these highland water tower resources, these are forested uh, water towers, are able to store huge amounts of water. So you have El Nino, it it creates a buffering effect to the El Nino Southern Oscillation. And that's arguably the uh, world's most important climatic phenomenon. So now we're seeing that the fact that we have periods of depressed rainfall can be sustained by the stored water. The challenge, I imagine, uh, is to preserve the current status quo. So the question, I guess, is are there specific regions against that backdrop that are more at risk than others? You follow these rivers to their sources and you typically find people that are living traditionally. These are the least served communities in uh, those countries. These are areas that the soils are heavily leached. There's no agricultural development, no urban development. Um, So these areas are there to be protected. And that's certainly what we're doing in our Great Spine of Africa series of expeditions is documenting these areas, doing river baselines, scientific baselines, ecological baselines of them, and then looking at mechanisms of protection. So once you have that data, let's talk about the mechanisms of protection. Are there effective strategies then for keeping rivers in a pristine state amidst, as you've pointed out to me already, a growing environmental pressure? The future of conservation is local. So these are community-driven systems of protection. The people that we interact with up there, the people that guide us down these river systems as we do our assessments, as we uh, seek out the peatlands, the source lakes, the sources of these rivers, uh, they teach us about conservation, about using fire to optimize forest health uh, for honey production, for wildlife, uh, hunting seasons, hunting restrictions. Those things are all in place. And it's just about documenting, understanding those and finding ways in which we could finance and support those people. Against that backdrop, though, there's always the debate about the need to live versus the need to preserve and finding an optimum balance. doesn't just apply to rivers, but to all wildlife conservation. Yes, but you would think that carbon credits or carbon offsets, that kind of finance would help people at these sources, but they're typically living in pristine environments. 
You need something called additionality, which is threat to the system. And those people living there are not a threat to those systems. And we need to find finance mechanisms that pay them for the service they provide. They are protecting ecosystem services for high value users downstream, whether that's an urban development or an agricultural development. Their living up there is, is a good thing. And you can't really see the opportunity for population increase based on the land resource. This is just about water and about allowing those people to have better lives. In our eyes, we would see them as living in poverty. Um, in their eyes, not so much. So, Dr. Boys, how then, using that uh, model that you've explained to me, how do you integrate the local community knowledge that you're gathering in this great Spine of Africa expedition uh, and their participation in conservation efforts? So, w- in other words, what are you learning from them and what are you able then to perhaps replicate in other communities if that's possible? And this is something that's happening around the world, whether it's the Amazon, the Congo Basin, Zambezi, the Nile, Niger, all over Africa. It's about land rights and land ownership. With that comes pride. And that's what typically these communities don't have. They'll have traditional systems of land ownership. Uh, The governments will accept that they live there. But full land ownership is the first step for those tribal leaders. You know, avoiding elite capture at the government level, and that's typically happening with uh, carbon finance that comes in at large scale into these landscapes. So it's really protecting land ownership to start with. And then from there, building opportunities for sustainable development, enterprise development, for prosperity. What's your call then to the private sector in this response? How do they respond then to the challenge that you've laid down? We're looking at a fertility rate on average across Africa of four. We're going to have two and a half billion Africans by 2050. Our population boom is happening right now. And the rest of the world is sitting at about two, the fertility rate, that's babies per mom. And when you look at the United States in 1950, their fertility rate was four. So now our African boom is coming. And the one thing we need for that is water. That's to maintain, you know, water and food security, social security, to avoid human migration and all of the the torment will come with that. Um, People having to move because of water. And if we can secure these water sources, and if we can secure our long-term resilience to the impacts of climate change, which are coming, then you know the downstream high-value users, the businesses, the urban areas, the agricultural developments, all of that, that will be more sustainable. And those same challenges and, I guess, conditions also apply to South Africa's river systems, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, working in the Limpopo and Orange uh, river basins, uh, they face the same problems and same issues. Uh, South Africa is a little bit further developed than um, the other countries. So there are opportunities for what we call water bonds. In South Africa, there are more high value downstream users in the private sector that could invest in the local communities upstream that protect the water sources. Up in Africa, there are large hydroelectrical dam developments that could be paying for upstream services. So the private sector needs to participate. It needs to know where its water comes from. We've seen this in America on the Colorado River, the issues related to the sharing of water there. And we have a head start here in Africa. Just the same as, you know, the baby boom in America, they had transistor radios and black and white televisions and gas guzzling cars. We have AI-enabled smartphones. We have solar power. Our boom is going to be very different. We have such opportunity in Africa to realize an incredible future with two and a half billion people because we're not going to avoid that. We're going to get to that population level. But again, as I said, we need water. Dr. Steve Boyce, thank you very much indeed. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. 
Well, let's move from rivers to cheese now as we end the program. And a Simonsberg Gouda has been awarded South Africa's uh, top cheese or top South African cheese at the World Cheese Awards. I'm in conversation now with Christabel Ken from the Guild of Fine Food. She is the operations and marketing director. The Guild organizes the event. Christabel, a very warm welcome to you. What makes a winning cheese then? Well, good question. Um, well, all the cheeses blind tasted and there are cheeses from about 43 countries around the world. So we have all sort of huge amount of different styles. Um, but the judges are looking predominantly at taste um, and aroma, um, texture um, as well. And uh, a lot of cheeses to consume, uh, just over 4,500 cheeses entered. So this is a real accolade as far as South Africa is concerned. What made this particular Gouda um, special? What gave it the edge? Well, it would have been tasted alongside 45 uh, cheeses on its table. So you're right, there's 4,500 cheeses um, in the room. And we split those up into, into sort of groups of groups of 100 in, in judging teams. And the teams would have gone through... And I, you know, it would have, it would have, they would have looked at it for the, for the appearance, for the taste, for the texture, and decided it was the best example of its type um, on their table. And then it would have been put forward to the next round. Christabel, this is a good time for South Africa at the moment. We've just won the Rugby World Cup. Now South African cheeses have secured three gold medals, seven silver, 14 bronze awards. Um, be nice to us. Tell me what this says about the current state of uh, South African cheese making on the global stage. Well, um, I was just looking at the, the numbers of South African cheeses and we had 20 more entries from South Africa this year. Um, we always try and want, you know, get some of the smaller producers to enter. So we have a, a consolidation point in South Africa. Um, and South Africa has been a very consistent um, both entrant and winner into the awards. Um, so they consistently, you know, your, your cheeses consistently do well. And you're really competing against, as you say, that on the global stage against some some really sort of big hitting cheeses in the in the in the world of the cheese industry. And just uh, finally, I've never heard of a big hitting cheese, but let's let's move on. <laughs> given given the stiff competition that you've just spoken about, I mean, it's really significant, I guess, from a business perspective, uh, for South African cheeses not only to compete but also to win. Absolutely, um, we know that retailers, but also consumers, really look out for those awards. Um, and some of the we have a lot of the judges uh, are buyers from around the world, but people also log into our website. We stream the whole thing live around the world, so we can see the hundreds and actually thousands now of people that have watched the playback on the on the awards. So they'll be looking at the recommendations. They'll be looking at what's next stock on their shelves. So it's really important business wise. Christabel, thank you very much for joining us. Christabel Ken uh, from the Guild of Fine Foods uh, talking to us from the United Kingdom. As we close the program on this Friday, other stories on our radar. President Ramaphosa telling the National Assembly he'll only act against his cabinet members implicated in state capture if they are charged. And the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Tel Aviv today and is expected to urge the Israeli government to agree to pauses in the fighting in Gaza. Money Meb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays then as a podcast as always thank you very much for listening goodbye to you and have a good weekend
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.